0: this time we'll go ahead and dismiss our kiddos who are third grade and under to their classes down the hall. Miss Ashley uh, and Miss Ari are back there. Um, And so they'll take them down to the class for their lesson as we open the scriptures this morning for our sermon. If you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, We have been in a Series of messages, working our way through the Book of Colossians, and so we invite you to turn to Colossians chapter two. That's where we're going to be this morning. As you turn there, um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me when we read it in a moment. You can follow along there, but. I would encourage you to turn there. We'll keep going back to it and referring to it. Uh, but as you turn there, I just want to say a word of welcome to those of you who are our guests. Uh, there should be a guest card on a seat around you somewhere. And so um, if you fill out one of those guest cards and would like some information about who we are as a church, you can drop it in the box at the kiosk in the back of the room there on your way out. We'd love to just send you an email, connect with you, answer any questions that you have. We're not going to spam your inbox. We'll send you one email, and then you get to choose after that how much you would like to connect with us. Um, But we would love to answer questions that you have or be in prayer for you. If there are things that we can pray with you or for you about, you can drop that card in the box there on your way out today. So Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll read verses 6 and 7 together and see how it fits into our lives. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is God's word. Uh, I don't know if if you're aware of this or not, but um, recently, archeologists have been unearthing what appears to be city parks across our nation that were built in the 1970s and 80s, and as they've unearthed some of the layers of soil there, they found some remarkable finds, right? They have found a number of cans that look a lot like this, crushed up, uh, laying down there beneath the surface of the earth, tab. I don't know if you remember tab from the 1980s, Uh, but they're finding a lot of tab cans also finding some of these things, right? some Walkman cassette players, uh, And they're also finding some mixtapes, even live recordings of Bob Marley from 1983, uh, on cassette. Uh, they're also finding a lot of uh, short, short basketball shorts from the 1980s. Um, I, rather than modeling that for you this morning, I thought I'd just give you a picture of Larry Bird. Uh, but they're finding all these types of artifacts. Uh, In addition, they're finding these large circular disks with poles on them, and they're calling them merry-go-rounds. They look like this, right? I don't know if you've ever seen one of these in a local playground or park where you might live. Um, They have become ancient artifacts in our day, um, largely because of all the broken arms and sprained wrists and everything else that happened, all the vomiting that took place on these things as well. But I can remember playing on on merry-go-rounds as a child. And we would always have contests to see who could stay on the merry-go-round the longest, okay, without losing our cookies. Okay, and so we would get on the merry-go-round and whoever the biggest and strongest person was would just spin us and spin us and spin us and we would try to stay long, on as long as we could. And in our experience, what we found was is that the closer you moved to the center of the merry-go-round, the longer you were able to stay on and the less dizzy you became. But the further toward the edge of the merry-go-round that you moved, the harder it was to hang on and the more disoriented you became. Now, as a child, I didn't understand the science behind this. But I read an article this week that gave me some, some, some really fascinating insights, right? Some of you who struggle with vertigo over the years, you know that your inner ear uh, maintains balance for your body. And when your inner ear is disturbed by forces such as spinning, you feel dizzy, right? You feel disoriented. And so whenever you got to the edge of the merry-go-round, there was greater force being exerted on your inner ear, and as a result, you felt dizzier and dizzier and dizzier. And here's why, at the edge, it was harder, because physics tells us that objects at rest tend to stay at what? Rest. Objects in motion tend to what? Stay in motion, right? But oftentimes, those objects in motion, they wanna move in a straight line. And so, if you want to move something in anything other than a straight line, you have to exert a great amount of force on it. And the force that's required, the more force that's required to move an object in a circle, right, with a large merry-go-round, that's called centripetal force as you move something in a circle in that way. And generally speaking, the larger the circle you move, the greater the force you need to exert in order to move it. So the further you move away, it's all the science, right? The further you move away from the center, the greater the force is that's exerted on you. The closer you move to the center, the less force that's exerted on you. You move away from the center, you feel more disoriented and dizzy. You stay close to the center, you feel less disoriented and dizzy. Who knew you could... Such fascinating truths could come from an ancient playground equipment. But here's the truth, the closer you are to the center, the less disoriented you become, while the further you move, the more disoriented you become, and the same is true in our lives. Right, when it comes to living a Christ-exalting, God-honoring, spirit-filled life, in a world full of God dishonoring, Christ-diminishing, Right, spirit evacuating actions, thoughts, and values, the further you move away from the center, the more that force from the world gets exerted on you. While the closer you stay to the center, the less you, you experience that, those centripetal spiritual forces. See, when you drift from the center, the spiritual centripetal forces that Paul's gonna call later in Colossians, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, he calls them human tradition. Empty deceit, godless philosophies that become stronger and stronger the further away from the center that you drift. The further you drift from the center, the more susceptible you become to what Paul's gonna say later in Colossians chapter two are those who insist on asceticism and the worship of angels, and they have proud, puffed-up minds. And yet the closer you remain to the center... The closer you remain to the center, the more, as Paul will say later in Colossians 2 as well, the more you are nourished, the more you are knit together, and the more that you grow with a growth that comes from God himself. And so as we look at this text in Colossians chapter two this morning, I like to tag this text with the title, Centering on Christ. Because he's at the center of the merry-go-round church. And the further we drift from him, the more the forces of, ele- of human tradition, empty philosophies, godless values exert themselves on us. Here in these two verses of Colossians 2, Paul sets out what nearly every scholar, when you read what they have to say about these particular verses, every scholar calls these two verses the thesis of Paul's argument in the book of Colossians. In other words, it's his central argument, the main thing that he's trying to communicate, that everything he has said up to this point is leading to this and everything he's gonna say after this is flowing from it. It is his central argument. So up to this point, Paul's been arguing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now in verse six, he says something that I find to be astounding. He says, we who have received Christ, we've come under his lordship and leadership in our lives, right? So he's spent all this time building this case that Christ is Lord, And then he says, you who have received him as Lord, come under his lordship and leadership. And then verse seven, it basically takes all the rest of the book, all the commands he's going to give, and condenses them down into one phrase to encourage us to, to make our aim to walk the rest of our lives in him, to center on him and not drift from him to empty human traditions, deceitful, philosophies. You with me? All right, so then what does it mean to center our lives on Christ and Christ alone? Here's how I'd like to say it to us. To, 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 I say us because I'm saying it to myself as well. Here's how I'd like to say it this morning is that to center on Christ means to live your life in Christ. Live your life in him. Listen, verse six, Paul writes these words. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you see the comparison that he makes there? The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, I think puts it a little more clearly than the translation I've read from this morning. It says it this way. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. Paul compares the way in which the believers in Colossae had received Jesus to the way they ought to continue to walk in Jesus. Paul compares those two things with one another, and this Jesus that the Colossians had received, they had received him as Lord, as he was presented to them by the faithful minister that Paul kind of Holds out before them and says, Man, Epaphras has been a stand-up guy among you. He's taught you true doctrine. He's pointed you to Christ at every step. So listen to him. He says, listen to Epaphras and not the false teachers because Epaphras was presenting to them uh, this Jesus that Paul had written about in verses 15 to 23 of chapter one and even on into verses two, three, four, and five of chapter two. This Jesus Christ is Lord in verse six is a very succinct way of Paul saying that he's the image of the invisible God, that he's the one by, through, and for whom everything was made. That he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That he's firstborn over all creation with all authority. The head of the body that is the church. The fullness of God pleased to dwell within Jesus. Our reconciler and peacemaker. That he is the mystery of God hidden for the ages and now revealed that he is our hope of future glory in the presence of God. And that he is the source as he says in chapter 2 verses 3 and four, the source and storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. And so whenever Paul says you've received Christ Jesus as the Lord, he's taking all those things and he's bringing them into that little succinct phrase. So to receive Christ in this verse, right, at the very least, It's not only a matter of believing in his person, but involves a commitment to the apostolic teaching they had received through Epaphras, who had been a faithful minister among them, and not listening to what stood in contrast to the false teaching of the human tradition that came from the false teachers. They had received Christ Jesus as Lord by faith, with trust and belief and clinging to him, and him alone, and committed themselves to Christ. And so that's what they were, continue, were to continue to walk in, and to live their lives in accordance with that. Now listen, let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, there is a difference between a fad diet and a change of lifestyle. <laughs> you recognize the difference? Most of you, as soon as I say that, you understand the difference, right? There's all kinds of fad diets. They've just been repackaged over the years into different versions, right? So you started out with the Atkins diet. Some of you are like, oh, I remember the Atkins diet, right? So you had the Atkins diet, and then like low-carb diets, all varieties of low-carb diets. and then you had the paleo diets, right? I'm only gonna eat things that people 3,000 years ago ate, right? So that's paleo diets. No processed foods whatsoever. Just not even grains, right? I'm just gonna eat, meat and whatever comes out of the earth, right, raw stuff, right, I'm just gonna, not even cook it, just chew it, all right, (laughs) right, the paleo diet, right, so you get all these fad diets that have emerged. Now oftentimes these fad diets are employed by people who are looking to lose weight, they they wanna get healthy, and so they go, well, I'm I'm gonna do this diet for the next 60 days. Right? And so for 60 days they do that diet and they lose like 25 pounds. It's an amazing transformation. And when the diet's over, guess what? They gain 35 pounds. <laughs> There's a difference between a fad diet and then a change of lifestyle because a fad diet promises quick results but a change of lifestyle brings slow results over the course of time and leads to a healthier you. And listen, every false teacher out there is promoting a fad diet It's only true faithful ministers like Epaphras who is saying, you don't need a fad diet, you need a lifestyle change. A lifestyle change where everything in your life is now coming under the lordship of Christ. Everything in your life is being submitted to his leadership all of your attitudes, all of your values, all of your thoughts, all of your conduct, you're saying, Jesus, you reign over it all. So I would say it this way this morning, to live your life in Christ means that you bring all of your life, every aspect of your life, for the rest of your life under the lordship of Christ. That's what it is to live your life in him, to walk in him. Is that you bring all of your life, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, all of your values, all of your attitudes, all of your life for the rest of your life. right? So if you met Jesus, God saved you at 12 years old. Then for the rest of your life, as you walk in him, you're bringing all of your life into submission to him. And let Jesus establish your values, guide your thinking, and direct your conduct so that you value, listen, you value Christ above all in word or in deed, doing everything in Jesus' name with thanksgiving because he is your highest aspiration and affection. Your thoughts You're not deceived by man-made religion with rules and regulations based on human traditions, but rather, as Paul's going to say in Colossians 3, you set your minds on things above where Christ is seated in the place of honor and glory at the right hand of the Father. Right? So your minds become captivated with Jesus. Your conduct You put to death what Paul's gonna say in Colossians chapter three are earthly things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, and divisions. You put those things to death, but then you put on positively compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, the capacity to bear with one another, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Love, peace, word-centered lives that erupt in praise and thanksgiving. Bringing all of your life, your values, your thoughts, and your conduct for the rest of your life under the lordship of Christ. That's what Paul means when he says, so walk in him. Live your life in Christ. That's what it it is to be centered on him. Now, without a show of hands this morning, hmm. I said without, not with, without a show of hands this morning, how many of us think that we're absolutely killing it? That we're making all the progress that we ought to be making in these areas. That we're bringing all of our life, every day, under the Lordship of Christ. Now, for those like me who constantly feel I'm taking one step forward and two steps back in this endeavor to live my life in Christ, I've got an encouraging words for you this morning, because Paul leaves us with some encouraging words. And so I want to give them to you. See, in, the, in verse 7, I'll get a little grammar geeky on you for a minute. In verse 7, there are three participles that modify the verb, so walk in him. And each of these participles, in fact, there's four. We'll get to the fourth one in a minute, but three of them are in the passive voice. Do you know what the passive voice is? It means something that's being done to you, but not by you. So in other words, there are things that are happening to you that someone else from the outside is doing as you aim to bring all of your life for the rest of your life under his lordship, to walk in him, to live your life in him. That God is doing something. And in fact, Paul starts with what not only God is doing, but what he has done. Because the first participle is not only in the passive voice, but it's in the perfect tense. You know what that means? That means this, it's something that has happened in the past that has ripple effects in the present. It's like you took a big boulder, and you, some of you are like, this is my reality over the last couple of weeks, because there's been massive boulders falling from the sky. right?" You took a big boulder, and you threw it into the pool. right? And when it splashes down in that moment, you see this big splash, but then you see small ripples that continue to make their way to the edge of the pool for quite some time. That's what the perfect tense is. Something that happened, but it continues to have these ongoing effects. And Paul says first that God has rooted us in Christ. That he's rooted us in Jesus. He says, if you've received Christ as Lord, then God has grafted you into a glorious supernatural vine with deep and stable roots that's producing ongoing growth that comes from God. And whether you see it day in and day out when you look in the mirror, if you're aiming to live your life in Christ, God is working whether you see it or not. And that brings me comfort. When Paul says that the Colossian Christians have been rooted, he understands that God is the one who's done the planting in the past, but they are still growing in the present. Now listen, in in horticulture, in the study of plants, I was fascinated by this earlier this week and my father's done a lot of growing of stuff over the years. He's planted tomatoes and cucumbers and squash and oh, like when we moved out, my brother and I moved out, he turned the whole backyard into a garden, all right, it had an acre of land and like the back third of it was nothing but plants, right? and in that process, he learned how to do not only how to plant seeds but also how to graft things and oftentimes when grafting takes place, it takes place as f- folks are trying to grow fruit trees. And here's why. Because if you plant a fruit tree from a seed, there's no guarantee that you're gonna get, right? Because that seed's been germin- or is, is been, is been uh, impacted by the, the mother seed and the father seed, and so they may have a little bit of different strains. And oftentimes whenever you plant a fruit tree from seed and grow it up, what happens is the fruit isn't what you expected it to be. It's something a little bit different. It might be a little bit sour, or a little bit sweeter, or a little bit more bitter. And so what they do to create consistent varieties of fruit is they graft. They take a rootstock, which is like the ball of the root ball and a trunk coming up. And then they take a variety, let's, let's talk about apples for a minute, okay? They take a Honeycrisp cutting off of the end of the tree, and then they cut a notch in the rootstock, in the trunk, and they whittle down the edge of the scion, and they stick it into that area. And then they put some stimulator on it and wrap it up with grafting tape, and they let it sit there for a while. And eventually, those two pieces come together, and they grow together. So that as that tree grows and gets larger, what it's gonna produce at the end of the, of the branches is what you intended it p- to produce. The fruit that you wanted to get. You wanted Honeycrisp apples, and so you get Honeycrisp apples. You want Gala apples, you get Gala apples. You want Pink Lady apples, you get Pink Lady apples. There's a lot more apples out there, right? But I'm gonna stop now, okay? But the point is this, you get consistent fruit whenever you graft these two things together. And I love the language of the scriptures. Because in the book of Romans in chapter 11, Paul's dealing with this issue. He's trying to to answer the question, listen, how is it that the Gentiles are now part of the people of God and what has happened to the Israelites who have rejected the Messiah and crucified him? And Paul's gonna use this language of grafting. And he talks about a wild olive tree and a cultivated olive tree, and he says the cultivated olive tree is Israel, but here's what's happened. God has taken a cutting from the wild olive tree who were the Gentiles, and he's grafted it in. So that now the Gentiles are a part of the people of God. And that they would be producing the fruit that God would intend them to produce, not something different. And so when Paul says that God has rooted us in Christ, that's the picture that he's grafted us in. In fact, Jesus himself is going to use this language in John chapter 15. He's going to say what? I am the vine, you are the branches. Anyone who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do a few things. Is that what he says? He says apart from me, you can do nothing. You will bear no fruit unless you are grafted into the vine. In other words, the fruit is worthless without Christ at the center. And that is God's work. He's rooted us in Christ. Second, He is building us in Christ. The next participle, again in the passive voice, but now in the present tense, which is this ongoing, continuous, repeated activity. And Paul says, if you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, then God is right now building you. Building you. See, this image, this image is, it comes not from horticulture, but from architecture. It's something that's happening right now. God is building. He's building and building and building and building and building. Even if you don't see it, God is building because Christians are being incorporated and integrated into a new building or structure. In fact, the New Testament authors are gonna use this language as well. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses four to six, we read these words. As you come to him, speaking to Christians, as you come to him, and who is him? He's a living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So in Christ, God establishes the cornerstone and then he begins to stack stone upon stone upon stone upon stone into this spiritual house which is a holy priesthood. You're not doing that. I'm not doing that. God is doing that in his church. He's right now in the process of building his church by incorporating living stones, you and I, built on the cornerstone, who is Christ, to become a spiritual house, a dwelling place for those who have come to faith in Jesus and received him as Lord and a holy priesthood representing God to the world. And yet, without the cornerstone, the house collapses. Without the vine, the fruit is worthless. God is doing these things. Whether you see it or not, He's rooted us and He's building us third. Third, God is establishing us in the faith. It's establishing us in the faith. Paul says, if you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, God is establishing you in the faith. As you aim to bring all of your life for the rest of your life, under the Lordship of Christ, you're being established in the faith. In other words, God is strengthening, I believe this is what he's saying, God is strengthening your grip and confirming true doctrine. See, if you look at verse seven, you'll see that faith has a definite article now, I know I'm, I'm geeky when it comes to some of this stuff. It has a definite article, and that definite article is the word the. Okay, when you see the word the in front of faith in the New Testament authors, they're often referring to a body of teaching that has come from Jesus through the apostles to the church. So this body of teaching, this body of doctrine that's been handed down from Jesus through the apostles to the churches in addition, it's followed by the clause just as you were taught. Okay, so he's establishing you in this body of doctrine that's come from Jesus through the apostles to the churches just as you were taught by the faithful minister I already referred to back in chapter one, Epaphras. Now this persuades me to understand faith here not as a subject of experience but an objective content that was transmitted to them. And what God is doing as we, as we aim to live our lives in Christ is He's establishing us in the truth and endorsing that true doctrine in our lives. Let me see if I can try to make it plain this way. See, God has endorsed the faith that we have been taught from faithful ministers. It's like when you write a check. I know many of us don't do this these days. We have automatic online bill pay, or we pay with a debit card online, or we do. You know, we, we, it's, we live in a cashless, and oftentimes now becoming a checklist society. But whenever you do write a check, occasionally, right? Uh, You've got your checkbook there and you write out the check and in order for someone to receive that check and deposit that check and use that check, you have to endorse that check. You have to sign it. Your signature has to be on it in order for it to be valid. Because you as the owner of the account, that's your money in there, Right, so if you're gonna transmit that money to someone else, you have to give permission. And a part of that permission is your signature on the signature line of that check. You are validating there is money in this account that will be transferred to this account. That is true, right, whenever you sign that check. And what God is doing is he's endorsing the true faith taught by faithful ministers like Epaphras as we bring all of our life for the rest of our life under his lordship. He's he's confirming us endorsing true doctrine in our lives. So let me put it this way. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You are free to do so. But without God's endorsement, whatever you believe is worthless. It has no cash value. Right, without, and you can try to get someone else to endorse it. (laughs) But anybody else's endorsement's only gonna cause that check to bounce all the way through eternity. There's only one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that God has endorsed and without his signature establishing and confirming that true doctrine, then your faith is worthless if it's not what he's endorsed. So all of these things are things that God is doing. He has rooted us. He is building us. He is establishing us in the faith. These are all gifts of God's grace. And they are the results of us so walking in him. This is what God is doing, rooting, building, establishing, and so that leads Paul at the very end of verse seven to another participle, but this one is not passive, this one is active. In other words, this isn't something that God is doing, it's something that we are doing, and it's something that we are doing in response to what God is doing. And in response to what God is doing, Paul says, we ought to overflow with gratitude for his grace. Abound in thanksgiving. See, up to this point, all these participles have been passive. Things happening to us. God's work as we bring our lives under his lordship. But now Paul shifts and says, this is what we are doing as a result of what God is doing, we are erupting, erupting in thanksgiving. Now, How does that work? Let me tell you how I think it works. As we think deeply and meditate on the work of God, His work of rooting and building and establishing, it causes our hearts to erupt in thanksgiving and gratitude. I can remember whenever I was... uh, just out of college and I was doing summer camps up in the northwestern part of the United States. And we were traveling, we traveled from Seattle to Utah to Wyoming to Montana to Idaho and then back to north of Seattle. We made a big circuit up there. It's one of the most beautiful country that our nation has to offer. But one of the stops along the way that we made was to see Old Faithful, okay? If you've ever seen Old Faithful, it's got its name because of its faithfulness, right? It erupts, it's a geyser that erupts with eerie regularity, okay? Right? And so it erupts like every so many minutes. It's just constantly erupting. And the reason that geysers erupt like that is because under the surface, under the surface there's a lot of heat which causes the water to boil, which if, if, if you know, it causes pressure in a confined space. If you start boiling water or liquids, pressure in a confined space, and as a result of that pressure, it causes that water to come shooting out of this real small narrow hole in the ground and erupting for minutes at a time. Right, so we stop to see Old Faithful. And as I think about old faithful, as I think about that eruption that takes place constantly because of what's happening under the ground, right, all of a sudden it gets seen above the surface with consistency and regularity. I think that's what Paul has in mind here because we're thinking deeply, meditating in our hearts on God's work of rooting, God's work of building, God's work of establishing and endorsing. And as we think about those things and meditate on them in our minds, and they simmer in our hearts and cause our affections to boil for the Lord, we can't help but erupt in regular thanksgiving and gratitude as it bursts forth. I think that's what Paul has envisioned here. But the only way that that gratitude erupts is whenever we set our minds to think about God's work. And so if you find yourself lacking in gratitude, you find yourself lacking in thanksgiving. The solution isn't, I've got to try harder and do better to be grateful. The solution is, I've got to fix my mind on what God has done and what God is doing. That's the only place gratitude comes from. That's the only place thanksgiving comes from. You can't muster it up yourself. But you can meditate on the work of God. So for those of you who are discouraged this morning and saying, man, one step forward, two steps back. And living my life in Christ. Christ. I want you to know God is at work. Whether you see it or not. He, if you are in Christ this morning, He has grafted you into His people so that you would bear consistent fruit. Not sour fruit, not bitter fruit. Not the fruit of unforgiveness. But the fruit of humility and kindness. Kindness. You would bear fruit because you're connected to the vine. That he would build up his church into this spiritual house and this holy priesthood to be a reflection of him in the world. And that he would establish and confirm and endorse the faith once for all delivered to the saints and ground us deeply in it. He's doing all those things behind the scenes. All of them. So center yourself on Jesus. It's not that the spiritual centripetal forces will go away. Right? They won't. But I tell you, if you center yourself on Jesus, you won't be thrown off the merry-go-round. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Son, whose finished work has brought about our redemption. We thank you for your Spirit that worked in our hearts to cause us to be born again, to have new life in Christ. So now may we walk in him. Live our lives in him. Bring all of our lives for the rest of our lives under his lordship. In our values, in our thinking, in our conduct. And may we do that by erupting in thanksgiving and gratitude with hearts full of praise for your work on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, this morning I invite you to stand as we sing in response to what the Lord has said to us this morning. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.